Hey, hey, beautiful soul fam. We are about to spice it up today. Welcome to Ceremony Circle Podcast. I am your host, shaman and author, Allison Charles. And I just want to get straight into today's journey because it is with someone I'm so glad I've had the pleasure to get to know since moving to Texas, as he is such a heart-centered being. And his name is Kyle Kingsbury. Now, some of you might know him from his UFC that's Ultimate Fighting Championship Days. That was an industry he was called into after being a Division One college athlete. And believe it or not, it was this physical fighting that was actually Kyle's gateway into walking devotedly on the spiritual path. And I love what he shares about regarding one of his main spiritual teachers and the unexpected place in which they met and how their journey together began to unfold. It's truly a testament to when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, and how we should always be open to the teachings that Source wants to share with us because they can truly come at any time, anywhere, from anyone. Now, Kyle was also able to help me expand on this topic of fighting It's something that I have always been so perplexed around and have wanted to gain a deeper understanding and clarity around why some have the drive or even make it their career to physically hurt another person. So like I said, I've always been perplexed by it and I knew he was the man to help me better understand it and he definitely did. And aside from fighting, Kyle has also been Like I said, a former football player for Arizona State. He's a retired American professional mixed martial artist. He is formerly the director of human optimization at Onnit and also the host of his own podcast. And when it comes to ceremonies, Kyle's willingness to totally openly share about the types of ceremonies he was called into and the way in which he would set the intention and interact with the spirits of the plants and fungi, it's really eye-opening. And the lessons he's learned from being what I would classify a more hardcore extremist when it comes to dosing, those lessons he shares with us can be really, really helpful. So I want to thank him again from my heart right now for his recent work on reflecting and integrating and honestly sharing what it all taught him with us. We honestly, we cover so much. He shares his darkest moment in life that nearly took him from this earth plane, how he's the quantum shifter in his family line, how he healed wounds from his childhood, the brave steps his dad even took to mend the relationship, and why humility is such a beautiful key in walking the path. You will definitely want to stay for this entire Ceremony Circle voyage because it brings in energy, a flavor, and wisdoms that are super unique. So let's go with Kyle Kingsbury. Go. We're about to go on a voyage of the many paths of Kyle Kingsbury. Can't wait. I can't wait either. I've been pumped for this one because, you know, I'm just going to get right to it. I want to start, I want to just go right to your MMA background, your fighting background, because I have to be honest. And this is the reason I'm so excited for this chat, because I want to expand. Because when it comes to fighting, I've always been so confused. And I'm like, I can just tell you're the perfect person to help me understand like more rooted functionalities and like what 
drives, some of the examples of what the drives are to pummel someone and to kick someone. I want to understand more. So I just want to start there. (laughs) I love it. This is great. This is great. Let's see here. Let me back it up first to growing up. I fought a lot as a kid, you know, like uh, parents fought all the time, not physical, but you know, definitely violent communications. And because of the home life was pretty disgruntled, you know, I acted out in class and things like that. I was really tall and thin, so I got picked on by older kids. Oh, you and used I, to be thin? I was like a razor. I was a beanpole. And I would fight quite a bit. Like if I couldn't outrun the kids, I'd have to turn and scrap. And for me early on, I didn't realize this till later, like that was the only time in my mind where there was peace and quiet. Which time? When I fought as a kid. And the reason for that is like you just go into full like I'm 100% present now. And it was a form of flow without understanding that terminology or ever having heard it before where the world went quiet, nothing else mattered, and every single thing that I did mattered. And you were so connected and dialed into yourself. Okay, I see. I'm already expanding. So there was a little addiction to that growing up, you know, that, that started a brew that I never fully appreciated until later looking back. And football was my thing. I played football from 10 until 22 or 23. You played in college. Yeah, I finished at Arizona State. I was a bench warmer. And that kind of left a sour taste in my mouth. I wanted to finish my athletic career on my terms. I was missing camaraderie and having a team and, you know, lifting weights by myself and going for runs just wasn't doing it. It felt like masturbating on some level. I needed the guys. I needed the squad. So this, that feels interesting. There's something there. And this is while you're at Arizona State? No, this was after I finished Arizona State. It was after you finished. So I started looking, you know, football's end, you know, it's no, I had no chance of going pro having sat on the bench for that long. And I had thought about just training mixed martial arts just due to the fact that, you know, like here's something I could learn that's new. I've always enjoyed fighting in the past. And it was more just for my own, just to have a squad, you know, like something better where it's not, I'm not my own coach. And I also understand too, of course, in a different storyline, but when I was a college athlete, my ex, who was also a college athlete at the time, he was a a baseball player and he had been drafted out of high school, turned on the draft to play at Alabama and was a pitcher, ended up tearing his rotator cuff and that it was a wrap, you know, and I remember witnessing so much coming up for him, you know, this ego identity loss and collapse and so much going on that identity that he had always known since three year old of being a pitcher of being a baseball player, as that was collapsing and disintegrating, it really threw him into a tailspin into some addictions. It was incredibly hard to watch and to be a part of because we were living together. And so I'm curious for you, even though you were just painting this picture of being pulled over into like, you know, it's a similar archetype, you know, football player to fighter, but was that area where you had that loss of the football team, was there a hard spot in there for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I actually attempted suicide. It's the only time where that that happened in my life. Uh, So it's funny because it's like a in my head, I'm trying to stick to answering the original question without diverting. That was the hardest point of my life. I quit. I quit. I'm actually still a senior at Arizona State. I never finished school. I was like, fuck this place. Fuck having a desk job. Both my parents were in sales and on 100% commissions. And I saw what that stress was like to go from we're rich, buy anything you want to we're dead fucking broke. We're having spam and mac and cheese again. You know, it's that roller coaster. I would never wanted to emulate that. And of course, you know, just to stay eligible, I had these ideas of getting 
getting a master's in business and all this stuff when I got to ASU. And it was like, hey, you need like six, you know, degrees higher in mathematics to even be accepted in the business school. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? Until by the end of that, I had two minors to equal one major, a bachelor in interdisciplinary studies. And, um, you know, I had taken all the classes that I liked. It was communications and sociology. And I had a fair bit of psychology just due to, you know, my own rattled brain and upbringing. And, but when I got to the end there, it was just classes on how to sell yourself. Like literally there were BIS classes, bullshit classes on how to present yourself in an interview to an employer and pitch why having two minors is better than one major. And I was like, oh, this degree is such nonsense that you need to put me through semesters worth of work on how to sell myself based on the shit degree that you're giving me. So on every side, I saw falsehoods and fuck. And I was just like, no, this ain't for me. You was I got the sense of like just implosion from the inside. Just like, oof. Yeah. And, you know, I think the core elements of depression that go that dark are not seeing light at the end of the tunnel. You know, and I had a lot of stuff that I hadn't healed from my upbringing. One of the other key issues, you know, and I'd mentioned briefly with my girlfriend at the time in between podcasts, this was early on in that relationship. There was a feeling of, I didn't feel like I could ever be loved. You know, so that being the straw that broke the camel's back, I had, you know, a myriad, I'm sure we'll talk about plant medicines. I had all the wrong drugs at ASU. We were number one party school in the nation. On weekends, I was doing coke and shoving ecstasy up my ass and just trying to get out of my mind as much as I could, really diving into what, grabbing at whatever was there. And, you know, in between, I had all the prescriptions that I wanted. So I had a doctor literally give me 60 Vicodin, 60 Xanax, 60 Valium, all at the highest strength. And so, you know, weekends I'm doing cocaine till 5 a.m. and then, you know, chewing a Xanax to go to sleep. And that roller coaster, it's funny, it's like as my career unfolded with fighting and human optimization and biohacking, whatever you want to call that stuff, like really how do I get the most out of my physical instrument and balance the mental, emotional body with that because someone's trying to punch me. That's was the, the seed was planted for all of that to be learned because of the importance of it with, as it pertained to fighting. And so, you know, looking back, Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep, you know, things like that. It's like, damn, like just that alone is enough to throw off neurochemistry for months. This was a weekend deal every weekend for probably two years. And then you add in the other elements of unresolved issues and, you know, core misconceptions around love and things like that. And it identity was, that was crises. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the identity crises was massive. It was absolutely massive because I kept clinging and holding to the things like strength training, which I still love to this day and running to be in shape and things of that nature that just weren't, there was a missing piece to it, you know, and I thought being around other people was it. It wasn't it. It's just that I, I really wasn't done developing yet. On a soul level, there was more to be developed through physicality. And I was drawn to fighting. You know, after I, I came out of that, you know, slammed every pill in the medicine cabinet. I went to the top of parking lot seven at ASU, stripped down naked and got ready to jump. Oh, Kyle. And I felt this wash come over me. It was the first time in my life where spirit spoke directly to me. And I just remembered hearing and feeling at the same time, like all at the same time, not yet. And that was it. And it was so peaceful and reassuring like the peace that I'm seeking through death will come, but not yet. It's not, it's not now. And I was just like, oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And then it just settled in and maybe the anti-anxiety medicine was kicking in, but it was just like, it was undeniable. And um, guard had followed me up, you know, and he peeked his head up and saw this giant dude butt naked. And he was like, whoa. And I, I started laughing. I turned around and he was like, oh shit, man, will you please come down? And I was like, yeah, I'll come down. Let me grab my rope. And, you know, I, I came down and 
I remember getting in his car and I woke up, I think 36 hours later in a hospital and, you know, all my family had flown out, my sister. And that was the first time where we really got to hash it out. My parents got divorced when I was 13. There was a lot of stuff that was unsaid in particular after the divorce with, you know, seeing my dad every other weekend and him really trying to hold on to being my dad but not being around enough to actually be my dad. And I mean that in all the best and the worst ways, right? Like being a father now, kids fucking need that. I needed that. But, you know, that showed up with a lot of confrontation between the two of us because it was like, I don't need to fucking listen to you. I see you two, t- you know, once every seven days, basically. Like, you're out. But that also healed some of our relationship. You know, he, he started to approach me differently and, and more as an equal and as an adult. And and so that started to happen when they came to visit you at the we hospital. Got, we got to talk at the hospital about all this unsaid shit, you know, oh from 13 gosh. through 18 through 20, really, you know, so. I mean, in what a moment, a, hold exactly where you are, but like, do you remember that security guard, like his name or what he looked like? Or No, I had flashbacks of a male nurse. And that's the only thing I have flashbacks of. And I remember telling my mom, I was like, everyone's mean here. And she was like, well, you weren't very nice. And I was like, oh. You were in a dark place. Wow. And so I also just want to try to understand a little bit. You know, it's interesting for me. The idea of suicide has been one that has intrigued me for a long time for a lot of different reasons. And back when I used to work in television and I was a producer for some big shows and big networks, I actually pitched an idea for a show when I was working in development called I Survive Suicide because I I was just really intrigued to hear people's stories of entering into those, you know, scariest, darkest, most confronting places and getting to the point of actually contemplating or doing it and surviving. And then what happens then? What comes up for one then? And so I'm curious for you. It's like, I don't know, even know my exact question, but to be that close, you know, to be standing on the ledge of the top of the parking garage and like, you're literally a second away from doing it and then feeling spirit moving through you. I don't know what comes up when I even am talking about this. Like how did that change you? Do you remember what you thought when you reflected back to how close you were to doing that? Were you mad at yourself? Did you understand and have compassion? Like what happened next when you were that close to doing it? Right. You know, there's obviously a few questions in there. I had always felt a spiritual connection, but never had evidence of it, at least in my mind. You know, I had done stupid shit like drive drunk home from Chico four hours on Interstate 5 going 155 miles an hour. Never been in an accident. Consider that a very big mistake, you know, that I'm very fortunate. There was no no harm, no foul done in those things. But there was plenty of times where I literally redlined myself physically just to teeter, like fucking do it. Let's go. I'm ready. And, you know, so to have that confirmation of something that I had felt and to feel held in that was just like, oh, now we're, we're playing a different game now. The whole, the nature of my life had shifted from that one moment into one where I understood the divine was there and always there. And I think I spent about six days in the hospital and, you know, they wanted me to, to they said, it's, look, it's really a big deal to cold turkey, anti-anxiety medication. You have to something to bridge. And it probably did for a day. And I was like, no, fuck it. I need to be clean and sober. And that was really the first time where I had a draw, like a deep draw to just be me and to see what that felt like. And, you know, in the hospital, there was time allotted on the days, you know, with family for family counseling, where it was like the airing of grievances. And those are the moments that I was talking about where 
we really got to clear the air of 13 years old onwards. And there's, you know, everything that happened living with my mom as a single mom doing her own healing and trying to provide for two kids. And I got to say a lot to her that I had never said before. And, you know, that to me gave me some, I guess, a little bit of space was created inside. Then I just thought, like, I was, there was a first point in my life where I thought, like, where, what now? What do I want to create now? And I didn't have any ideas other than I had a, a renewed trust and I wanted to do the things that I wanted to do. And I knew I wasn't done being an athlete yet. And so I wanted to train in mixed martial arts just for the sense of training and the camaraderie and having someone else teach me these things and, and having always enjoyed it before. I didn't want to fight professionally. And the guy who ran the gym, he ran a local promotion called Rage in the Cage. And he's like, dude, you're tall, you're handsome, really athletic. Do, a, do one pro fight for me. If you love it, you can continue. If you get you know, your ass kicked, you never have to do it again. You can just say, hey, I had a one pro fight. You know, and I was like, all right, that's, that's a pretty good sales pitch. I won my first two fights in under 30 seconds. You know, I was like, all right, now we got to train. Now we got to actually, I got to do it. And where are you living at the time? I was still in Arizona. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't tell my parents I was fighting until I was 3-0. and and my dad heard from my uncle. He's like, how about my nephew? And he's like, which one? He's like, your son. He's like, what about him? And he's like, he's undefeated. He's like, undefeated in what? In what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, that, that was funny. But, you know, the thing that fighting really did for me is it planted that seed to want to learn more. And, and I couldn't get away. I couldn't get away with, with treating my body like shit. I still partied like an asshole after the fight, win, lose, or draw. You know, I'm still up till 5 a.m., you know, rock star lifestyle in a sense in my own mind. But two weeks to four weeks before a fight camp... I had to be razor sharp. I had to start getting in shape. I had to clean and detox out and really start to follow and pay attention to everything that I was doing because it mattered. Like if you're fighting for that half a percent in performance, you know, as an athlete, then all these things matter. And, I, you know, I couldn't differentiate like how a sustained approach to it throughout the year would have been that much better. Right. It was like, I but have this is a big improvement for you. Massive, massive improvement. And and that's really how I saw it was like, I get to be a good boy for half the year because if you fight three times a year, you know, camps, eight to 10 week camps, that's about six to eight months of being clean and doing all the right things. And then the other time I've granted myself permission to reward myself with absolute nonsense. And along the way, there was so many things that just continued to funnel that my first strength coach introduced me to Paul Check's work. And that's when I started to an elimination diet and figuring out like what I put in my body makes a huge fucking difference in how I think, how I feel, how I operate. And I can't thank you know, that connection enough. It's literally changed my life and literally allowed me to see food differently for the first time. And then that, with that big of a change in how I felt and how I performed, that just created a thirst for more knowledge. Like, oh, if this just happens from changing my diet, what happens if I learn about mobility from Kelly Sturette or I learn about ice baths and breath work from Wim Hof or I get a mindfulness coach and I actually can come in and not be scared? You know, it just, it just lit a, a fire and that fire never went out. You know, the, the other thing that really was pivotal in my fight career was my boxing coach after I moved, you know, I, I got to 7-0, and I lost my first fight and I moved back home to the Bay Area and there's a few reasons for that. One, my family's there. I miss them. But two, American Kickboxing Academy in San Jose was at the time and still to this day, one of the best gyms in the entire world in mixed martial arts. And a guy that was wrestling at ASU when I was playing football there, Cain Velasquez, he's 2-0. and He just moved there. And my strength coach was like, Kingsbury, go home. What are you doing? You got to go train with Cain. He's going to be the best, you know? And I was like, all right, cool. You know, I remember Cain. And sure enough, you know, he went on to become one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. So I was training at AK. I moved home and my first boxing coach there was a guy named Witsi, Arturo Mara. Witsi is short for Witsilin, which is Mayan for the hummingbird. And he's, you know, just a tiny mestizo. <laughs> and uh, we just move in and out. He moved like a damn hummingbird. But 
he was a medicine man and uh, he oh, would take this is so beautiful okay I'm seeing it he'd take me and a few of the other fighters out to a Native American reservation in Northern California for traditional Timas calls and sweats and, and prayer and really using reverence you know we'd do it at the beginning of a fight camp to really purify and understand what the mission is and then after the fight to heal to let go to How take full survey How majestic that the irony that fighting was the gateway into your path to spirituality and consciousness and medicine people and sacred ceremonies. Okay, I'm loving this. Continue on. I knew there was some gold in here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so Weetzi really represented for me and my wife, you know, our first major journeys with psilocybin. And it took, you know, after a couple of years, I was like, coach, when are we going to use La Medicina? And he just burst out laughing. He's like, I've been waiting for you to ask me. And uh, we started working with psilocybin and, and, you know, from the jump, they were all heroic doses. They, he, he understood the warrior's path and laid it out before me in a way where it was like, we're going all in. We're not tiptoeing. There's no training wheels with this. And the space that he held was really remarkable. And the space of the land, too. Like, there's no running water. There's no lights. You know, it's not like Arizona where you got casinos everywhere. Like, this is like untouched native land. And, yeah, I could feel the presence there. And, you know, really connecting with him in that way and, and meeting others. And then eventually I had a friend travel to Peru. And he told me before he's going, he's like, oh, I'm going to go hike Machu Picchu. And I looked it up. And I was like, that's incredible, dude. Tell me how that is. And he called me from Peru. And, and uh, I was like, why are you on the phone with me, dude? And he's like, well... So there's this stuff you got to look up. And I was like, what? And he's like, well, I can either do ayahuasca or I can hike Machu Picchu. And I was like, hike Machu Picchu. I've never heard of this other shit. What are you talking about, dude? Just hike. And he's like, no, no, I promise you, look it up. And so I remember going to arrowhead.org and the first line that I read on a trip report was the apex of teacher plants. And I was like, whoa, all right. And I talked to my coach. He ended up just hiking Machu Picchu, but I, I talked to my coach and I said, would you come with me to Peru? Because I don't, you know, I, I know like three words in Spanish and and I'd love to have you as a guide. And he said, I'll bring Peru to us. And he brought curanderos in. And, and probably my first dozen journeys with ayahuasca were there on that same land. God, I had no idea. I'm so fascinated that Wheatsy, you know, and I love this stuff. I love that this unassuming medicine man, you know, is operating out of a gym, teaching fighters fighting techniques. And I love covert medicine people like this where unless you lean in or unless you, you know, stay in that orb or that sphere, like you would go in and out, and out of that gym and never know that Wheatsy is that. And yet you somehow got aligned with Wheatsy and my mind is pretty blown because I knew nothing of this. So incredible. Wow. And so another thing that was coming in, and I'm loving this trajectory and I want to stay on it, but I also want to honor these like downloads that are entering and just tell me what comes up when I say this. But there was this idea of because you seem like a pretty extreme guy, an extremist. And back in the day, it was like extreme heroic doses of, you know, cocaine, or as you said, you know, putting ecstasy up the anus and things like this. Too many nights to count. <laughs> There's that form of extremism, which feeds, you know, the ego and whatever else we want to say. And then now you're leading us into this whole other way of experiencing life. And yet you reference you're taking heroic doses of psilocybin pretty much right out of the gate. And so then I was pulled over into how the extremism in that form can bring you closer to humility and spirit. And it's the complete antithesis of the extremism and the opposite direction. So I don't know. That was well, coming yeah, in. Yeah, first, you're completely correct. And I'm sure we'll talk about my 
30 gram dose with penis envy, but that's one thing I've done that once I've done that one time for a reason. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not, you know, and, and of course there was a guy who passed away last year named Kalindi Ai. A lot of his videos are still on YouTube. He really granted me permission. You know, there's that, sometimes you watch a video or uh, you hear a podcast and you just get that flood through your body. Like it's everything is a resonant yes. Cause I remember I had a friend send me that and I was like, oh fuck no. This guy's heroic dose is 20 to 30 grams. That's insane. Like I'm talking about, you know, five to 10 gram doses. At one point, Tosh and I split an ounce. It was 14 grams each. It's still golden teacher versus double that with penis envy is night and day different I mean, in completely different experiences. And there, you know, I have ultimate reverence for that experience, you know, so, so that there is a sense of, and I can perhaps dive into this in terms of like how I approach my medicine journeys as I don't like to have one foot in this realm and one foot in the other. I don't want to know if I have that questioning mind of like, is this me or am I actually talking to something else right now? Or is this, you know, am I still here? Like, I want to just be like, let me buckle up, let me go there and then let me come back and retain what I bring back. You know, so that that's always I've always appreciated deeper journeys like that. But the beauty of what Weetzi was doing is he he really wasn't allowing us to tiptoe. You know, and even fighters, I remember him, he ran a warrior's sweat lodge. Like if you got out in between rounds, you had to fucking stay out. Go hang out by the fire. He was hardlined in a lot of respects, likely because of his lineages, but also because of who he was working with. You know, when he worked with guys from Eastside San Jose that were recovering addicts, he had a completely different approach with him much softer. But with us, you know, he wanted to push us. He wanted us to understand, like, if your job is to push yourself, then you need to do it in all avenues, not just on a fucking treadmill. And I think circling back to the very beginning on, um, you know, the why behind it, martial arts specifically has many whys. And I think at the crux of that is self-development. At the crux of that is, is how I attune this instrument to be the best it possibly can be. Fighting whether it's mixed martial arts or something else, you know, really is completely different for every person. For me, it changed. You know, when I first got in, not having done plant medicines and not having really done much of the work, but feeling drawn to it, I just wanted to beat the fuck out of people. There's a line in um, Fight Club right after Ed Norton beats the hell out of Jared Leto. And Brad Pitt looks at me, he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And he just says, I just wanted to destroy something beautiful. And like that line, I was like, that's it, that's it. Just give me the legal permission to destroy someone. And over time that changed. Over time it became, I didn't care so much about destroying somebody or physically hurting them as much as I wanted to be the best version of myself. And even though the aggression is very much an element of that, you know, there, there's some jujitsu guys who get in and they say, you know, like, if I can't, if I can choke you out and not punch you once, I'm going to do that. That wasn't me. You know, even at the end when I, I wanted to hit people in the face, I liked that. And I didn't mind getting hit in the face to do that. There's, there's great fights with Forrest Griffin where he gets punched in the mouth and he smiles and nods his head like, yeah, buddy, because he knows he's in the fight, you know? So it, it is very much a difference. Not everyone has that. We're all, you know, of source. We all have our own unique gifts. And I've seen a lot of people come from different martial arts backgrounds into that gym. And the second they get hit, they no longer want to get in the fight. Or they do well in sparring, the coach protects them, they go have one or two pro fights, and then they quit. And so there is a difference. And it's not something I think that you're educated on or that you work through, like you've got it or you don't. And I always had that. 
what the beauty of that was, was that, you know, I was honey dicked into all of this other <laughs> really important stuff that became my life's purpose. And it was kind of like, hey, the meat and potatoes is somebody's going to try to take my head off and I'm going to try to take their head off. And in doing that, this sweet flan on the side of God is going to be right there with me. Yeah, this whole know? other thought, other side was coming in and enveloping you layer by layer by layer. So looking back, what did fighting most teach you? Well, you know, fighting per se, like I said, if I was to quantify one thing that fighting gave me, it was the a thirst for wisdom, not a thirst for knowledge, but the embodiment of knowledge, you know, applied knowledge becomes wisdom. And to really apply that, I did, couldn't just read things. I had to try it on for size. And so really for me, it was activating that. Like, what are the things that I'm learning, trying it? And then I have this great field test where I get to apply it. Did visualization help me in the fights? Yes. Did, you know, different forms of breath work calm my nerves so I wasn't freaking out at weigh-ins 24 hours before the fight and just, you know, exhausting myself before that? Absolutely. And if I knew if it could work in the most extreme, then it can work in the day-to-day. I had a long layoff between 2012 and 2014. You know, I had a shoulder tear, slap tear that required surgery. It took me a long time to recover from. And at that time, I had taken Czech's Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 1, not to be a lifestyle coach, but just for the, you know, I wanted the deeper dive with Paul. And, and Angie, uh, his second wife, was the teacher, and I was just blown away by them. You know, so that was a big draw. And I had all this time off, and I was learning so much and still working with the plants. And But I really still felt like I needed to test myself one more time. One of the things that I had always told myself was that fighting is in baseball. If I'm at 500 or under for my win-loss percentage... That's, <laughs> we're playing with my brain. It's not hitting a bat and a ball. So I always promised myself at any level, if I fell below 500, that I would retire. Thankfully, I had, I had done well enough in the lower levels, all pro fights. You know, I made it to 7-1, then I got on the Ultimate Fighter. And then, you know, I lost my first fight in the UFC. And then I won four in a row, two fight of the nights and a 30 second knockout. And then I went on a four fight losing streak. So I'm three fight losing streak. Now I'm at 500 in the UFC. And it's do or die. If I lose, I'm out. You know, I have this long layoff. Really, you know, the pressure when you come out after loss after loss after loss is like before I'm thinking I'm going to get in the top 10 and then a couple wins and I'm at a title shot, those kind of thoughts. And then it's like, oh, well, I'm starting from scratch after the first loss. And then, oh, I might lose my contract after the second. And just, you know, that, that kind of spiral took place. And the injury wasn't great because the shoulder is, you know, one of the most important joints in the body, especially for any you know, mixed martial artist, but, um, with the yeah, time you can't off, be having no limp noodle. <laughs> yeah, no, my arm was sliding out of the socket every time I threw a punch. Oof. And so surgery healed it a lot of mobility and you know, a lot of reflection. And I really just felt like I needed to do it one more time. And I didn't know why. And I went in there and I got my ass kicked in my hometown of San Jose at the shark tank. And I was like, why the fuck did I do that? Why did I need to do that again? And on a certain level, I didn't care. And on the other level, it was like, but why? And so I remember that first ayahuasca journey after really, that was one of the major intentions was really being honest, like stop bullshitting. Why did I need to do that one more time? And for eight hours, I oscillated between meditating every day, eating clean, going to bed early, reading spiritual books, and being in fight camp to then how I felt right after a bender and all the blow, the fucking depression, the self-loathing. Yeah, the puffiness from all of the gluten and the beer and everything else. And just I felt and lived those experiences. And I purged like crazy when I was in the, the reward section of my fight camps. And I got to live that experience. I, I remember just begging ayahuasca to, to stop. Like, I get it. I get it. Okay, I don't need to do this again. I get it. And then, oh, peace. And, you know, I oscillated back to the 
to those really dark moments and I would feel it and live it into its fullest expression to where I'm literally tapping out. Like, I can't handle this anymore. And finally at a point where I understood why it was oscillating back and forth was an agreement that I made to myself where I didn't need a fight camp eight weeks or 10 weeks from now to take care of myself. And I promised I would learn to reward myself differently in that if I never fought again, that I could do so and love myself the whole way through without having a reason behind mm-hmm. it. Yes, you had evolved to that place. Got it. Yeah. And so this was like a very hard, hard last lesson test that encapsulated the entirety of my career. Because at no point, you know, even as my awareness was growing from plant medicines and I understood this to not be the best move to celebrate in that way, I still was clinging on to it. You know, I don't want to give that part of my life up. I deserve it. I've, you know, fill in the blank. I'd make excuses and, and, um. Because it was so known to your cellular being still a bit too, I'm sure. Yeah. And so to be able to let go of that and fully love myself and, and really think of these practices as practices, but how I fill my cup daily. Yeah. It's life. Yeah. So that represented the, probably the biggest turning point. And what was cool about, you know, that particular ceremony with ayahuasca is I had no idea what I was going to do in retirement. I didn't make any money in the UFC. I was working, I was bouncing and bartending at a strip club, personal training. I had two side jobs while I was fighting in the UFC, living in my mom's garage with my wife, with Natasha, who's a fucking trooper. Wow. Right? So, that was, I was curious. I so, don't want to get into it, but I was like, <laughs> how did your partner feel with all of that? Okay. You know, she moved out there with me and then stayed for five years. And so, like I said, I, I didn't know anything about what I was going to do next. But the main difference between that and when I finished football was I had no attachment to it. I had no attachment to being an athlete and I had full trust. I didn't have to worry about what was coming next. And so I just remember asking, like on a walk, it's like, well, well, what now? And it showed me all of the books that I was reading and it showed me all the things that I was into. And it was like this, this is enough. Whatever you desire is enough. And I remember thinking, well, then how does that become something like a career? It was just kind of like a head nod and a smile of, you don't, you can't see it yet. But it does if you trust, you know, and, you know, a year later I went on Rogan's and, you know, he talked me into and started a podcast and I was like, well, I'm actually using that communication degree that I've worked so hard for (laughs) using a lot of these aspects. I understand people from sociology and psychology and that developed further and and I could get into where, you know, how I got to on it and all that other stuff. But, you know, point is, those are the first major seedlings planted where spirit gave me an offering and didn't tell me what was going to happen. But if I followed suit, then I could watch it unfold and and it just did flower after flower after flower. Wow. And how beautiful. I don't know how present you were to it at that moment, at that time, but to be able to feel and witness such massive evolution within yourself, you know, to be pulled into the wonderment and awe and the great mystery and the trusting of the great mystery as opposed to, you know, being so crippled by the fear of the great mystery that you're wanting to exit Earth. I mean, that's a massive shift. Hey fam, if this conversation about aligning powerfully with your soul's calling, aka your dharma, so you can be of greatest service for the world is lighting you up and you are ready to unlock or go even deeper into your unique dharma, you can do that right now at Dharma Coaching Institute. Just head to dharmacoachinginstitute.com and be sure to use code Allison. That's my first name, A-L-Y-S-O-N. You can use that in the coupon area at checkout as that is the only way you'll be able to receive a free copy 
of my best-selling book, Animal Power, 100 Animals to Energize Your Life and Awaken Your Soul, along with also receiving a free video guided shamanic journey where you will meet the power animal who wants to support your career path moving forward. Doors for registration are only open now through April 3rd and last enrollment period they did sell out. Dharma Coaching Institute is taught by three close friends and colleagues of mine, Dr. Nita Bhushan, best-selling author Sahara Rose, and Ajit Nwalka. Sahara and Nita have both been interviewed here on Ceremony Circle, so you can dive into those episodes to get a feel for them, but know that DCI introduces the world's first coaching double certification program, where you can become a certified Dharma and soul purpose coach. DCI is a six-month coaching certification program designed to help you apply your natural gifts to launch a high-income and high-impact career. And as master coaches, their mission is to guide and support you in making an impact that's truly transformational for the world. Sahara, Nita, and Ajit have taken decades of their knowledge and wisdom, put it all together to guide you step-by-step in developing the skills and confidence you need to take your career to its highest potential. So again, when you head to dharmacoachinginstitute.com, be sure to remember to use the code Allison, A-L-Y-S-O-N, in the coupon code area when you register. This is the only way I will know to send you a free copy of my best-selling book, Animal Power, along with a free video guided shamanic journey that I facilitate with my drum, where you can meet your power animal who is ready to help your career soar and your pathway moving forward. All right, back to the show. So you have uh, come a long way by this point, and you continue. I'm just going to tune in here to where we're at. You're like, okay, I'm starting to see, you know, just being pulled by, um, yeah, what's lighting me up, what I'm inspired by, what do I most want to learn? And uh, the other thing that I think is really beautiful about you, and I want to get your perspective on, is do you view yourself to be the shifter in your family's line? Like, do you have any sense or belief that you incarnated to be the person in your lineage to really transcend your ancestry out of certain shackles, addictions, habits. Are you that guy? Yeah, I mean, no doubt. I think a lot of people that really dive headfirst into the work can recognize that in themselves, you know, even before their parents, before I was a parent, I understood I was going to have kids at a certain point and I understood that I was going to do it differently. I think that's a goal of everyone. And to my parents' credit, they did a much better job than their parents. And there was still, you know, obviously more to, to be done. And I still make tons of mistakes with my kids and they will inevitably do a much better job than I do. But I, I've had several, I was out in Sedona and on uh, a lighter journey with psilocybin and really connected to that. And my grandfather showed up, granddad, who, who's my father's father, he passed away when I was 13 and, and uh, 12 or 13. And he was right there with the head nod, like witnessing it. And the he came in right after I had a vision of, of guiding my father through a ceremony. So, you know, I think we had spoken about it in between or maybe on my podcast that my dad had joined me for a couple ayahuasca journeys. And the thing about ayahuasca, is, as beautiful as it is, is that it requires you, all of these things require your consent and continued consent. So for a lot of people, one cup isn't going to quite push them over. It's like it's still kind of in the teeter-totter land and it might take a second cup or another half cup or just, you know, a further surrendering into allowing that to fully take effect. And that can happen just from a half a cup or but but it does require you saying yes. And so for my dad, there was always the fear of 
many fears, you know, embarrassment, uh, being turned inside out, having to have other people care for him. You know, you pretty much can be a baby in those ceremonies and require the help of the elders and the caretakers that are there. That's not something he was willing to do yet. And, you know, remember specifically different journeys where, you know, he refused to have any more, even though, you know, he said, yeah, I'm kind of seeing stuff, but not a lot. And it's like, okay, you know, and just in, this was early on in my work with that. So I didn't fully have the that's okay. You know, it was, it was from my perspective, it was like, come on, dude, fucking let's go. And so what was cool is in that journey, I saw my wife and I guiding him with psilocybin and MDMA. And, and I was like, interesting, MDMA, why is that? And I hadn't, I hadn't really worked with those two in combination much at that point. But the answer was, it will lead him in love rather than fear. And I was like, okay. And then I got, you know, full messages on the exact dosing and all of that. And, and before Christmas, a couple years back, maybe three years back, he joined us and it was just the two of us and, and him. And we all dropped in and he, it was the thing, you know, the journeys with ayahuasca prepared him for that experience, not the other way around. And knowing that we were really at the helm as caretakers for him allowed him to surrender into it and fully be present and to purge in front of us and to shake and to, you know, to refuse and then to agree and to just be in all the, the places within that journey. And, you know, since then he hasn't journeyed, but he has, you know, he's, he spent a month in Rishikesh with Muji 30 days straight, right before quarantine and all the, the, the world events that we're experiencing now. But, you know, I've seen his trajectory and it's just like, wow, okay, when you're ready, right? You know, and that's another thing I think I was, you know, beating a drum from a mountaintop before, and then it's like, oh, it isn't for everybody. And, oh, actually, I have worked with a lot of people that have been messed up from experiences in the Amazon. And that's a whole real side of this coin that doesn't often get talked about. And at the same time, even if you say yes, it might not be my experience. It might not be your experience. It might be something very different that isn't everything you hope for. But when you're ready... If there's a yes, then then that can be there for you, you know, and that was my father's experience and he doesn't feel the need to ever go back. He's like, he has full confirmation of source, full confirmation of his own divinity, full confirmation of any question he ever had was answered in four hours. Like, what would you say if you met God? Like he, he that was his experience for four hours. And that was an experience where I felt the present, Weetzi has, has transcended and, you know, Weetzi was there and granddad was there and I could just feel all of us. You know, my son bear, me, my dad and granddad and Huitzi, the guy that, that, here you go, <laughs> you know, like just brought us right to the medicine and when the timing was right. And, you know, that, that holding in that container was really something special. It was really something special for me to witness. But as far as you're talking about with a break in the lineage, a change of gears, a shift of pace, the idea that sure, each generation improves, but this one's going to be a kind of a quantum leap. I think that was recognized between all of us in that moment, even Bear, you know, who didn't understand any of it and wasn't there, you know, like he was there in spirit. Yeah, it was, that was that was a big journey for us, you know, and then that's very specific to, to the question you're asking. It was just understood between all of us. And it wasn't something like, I'm going to go do this now, or I'm writing this as an intention. It was just like, Sedona let me know that we were going to have that journey. And granddad, you know, said yes to it. Like this, this is the move. And when we went through that, it was like just beyond words. But yes, full yes. Oh, I can feel it so much. And I just want to take a second to honor, you know, you and Tosh for, yeah, and your dad, of course, being able to say yes to that. It's, um, I, I'm always astounded when I hear of people who are able to sit in various types of ceremonies, like even, you know, Luke and I going to Joe Dispenza advance retreat with Luke's dad, who's like 80 or whatever, you know, it's like, whether it's that or MDMA and psilocybin, I mean, it's so powerful and beautiful. And 
whenever I hear of parents sitting with their children in these transcendent, um, deeply transformational spiritual ceremonies. So I just commend your dad. Like, I don't know why I'm just like, I was surprised to hear that that was weaving in. I'm like, wait, your dad sat with you in ayahuasca? Oh, wait, then you three and he really let himself go fully into that space. I mean, I'm just, I'm surprised. And yeah, I just want to pay respect to him for doing that. Not many, not many parents do, you know. How is your relationship? Um, is he still living? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my relationship with both parents is phenomenal. It's night and day different. My kids absolutely adore them. You know, we go back to California to visit them. They're all back in the Bay and we were just out there for a week and, and they're just great. My sister's there. She's got four kids that are all pretty close in age, three boys and then a brand new daughter. So, so much of that, of my family dynamic with my family that I grew up with has changed because of the work that I've done without them doing any of it. Yeah. I remember I had a vision of, of my sister not doing ayahuasca with me ever. And I was like, why? And then I saw all the times I'd introduced her to a street drug and was throwing up in front of her and like, get away, don't look at me, you know, like that. And it's like, oh, this is okay. That's the why. And at the end of the day, it didn't matter. Like it was me drinking for the two of us. Yes, you know? And yes. Like really feeling into that, like how the resonance that I change within is the most palpable gift that I deliver to them. Otherwise, it's just talk, right. right? Like how is my presence with her? Does she feel my love and my peace? And with that, can she anchor to that and know that, that she doesn't have to drink? She can just hold that with me and enjoy that with me. And then let that manifest in her own life through various ways because she's seen it in me. And that's that's been the case with us, and it's been pretty fantastic. Yeah, that is an important note, just the embodiment and, and the work fully landing and integrating within someone, just the presence, you know, the, the medicine person not facilitating a, an actual ceremony or providing doses of anything, but just simply sitting in the living room while the TV's on and transmitting, you know, the unconditional love or whatever it is that needs to be transmitted and, and infused into the space, like is just as powerful as some of the other mechanisms. And so I think one category that I, I definitely don't want to miss out on because you are a bit unique in um, your experience with it is what we've touched on is your ability to take these heroic doses and I think that you have a lot of wisdom to share and, you know, this is Ceremony Circle and a lot of the people that listen to this, you know, I guess they're in various stages on the spiritual path, but all with this innate, never-ending, infinite quest um, to learn and to have the full experience of life. And so I would just love for you to share a little bit about, and I know there's a lot that comes with this question, but based upon the different types of ceremonies you sat in and the way that you are equipped, like for me, you know, when I sit in ceremony, I come in it from a different intention, a different place. And so, you know, I'm sure our experiences are quite different, but I want to hear your side and I want my listeners to be able to hear your side of what is that experience like when you take, I forget how many doses of, and I don't even know if I've even had penis in me. Is that a mushroom? Is that? Yeah, it's one of the strongest for sure. Okay. And they, they are quite phallic, you know. They, okay. They like <laughs> Hence the name. Before they get, yeah, before they're picked and dried, they they look like, uh, they're a good size. <laughs> they definitely look like, like penises growing. Incredible. You know? And so, yeah, what is that like when you go so full on? Um, what have you learned? And I don't want to label things as negative and positive, but like, what are the, some of the wisdoms you've gained in both categories of like, oh, I would definitely do that a little bit different or, yeah. Right. So, I mean, uh, 
I'll backtrack to Kalindi. As I said, when I had a friend send me this and, you know, saw that this guy for 20 years has been doing 20 to 30 gram journeys and that's his version of heroic. I was like, he's a fucking quack. Nobody does that. You know, I've heard of Stamets, you know, accidentally having an ounce before he understood it and, you know, never doing that again. And, but to repeat that, you know, and to do it with some stronger strains, I was like, uh, uh, maybe I should watch. And as I was watching him, I realized he was more grounded and collected than many people I've met in IS circles, you know, many, and unfortunately. But, you know, he was a lifelong martial artist that drew me in. He understood plant medicines throughout the continent of Africa and the different tribes and what they use them for and for hunting and rites of passage and, and many incredible things that weren't necessarily standard, you know, in my sense of it. And so there was this draw, like here I am learning from somebody and immediately sucked in and, you know, midway through, like I said, this full resonance washed through me of, oh, I'm going to do this. And interestingly, I had had, I knew I wasn't going to be able to go to the Amazon and I had made a, a point that I would only work with black belt level shamans. So to use, you know, a martial arts term. I had worked with quite a few blue belts with the right medicine and everything went right, but I'd seen enough people where that went wrong that I was like, I can only work with the best now. And I know who those people are. So if I can't make it to those places, I'm just going to not do it. Really, it was ayahuasca that showed me this trajectory of 5, 7, 9, 11, 14, you know, working my way up to a half an ounce. In gold, it just these numbers kept popping up, and then I saw a golden mushroom sprout in my visionary field with a black background, and I was like, oh, you're showing me how to climb the ladder with psilocybin. And I, and I asked, is this okay alone? And it was, it was to be done alone. And... Kalindi mentions that just like Terrence McKenna, and look, I, side note, I agree with this and I disagree with this, right? So Terrence was five grams alone in darkness, alone in a room, will get you there. That was the heroic dose. East Forest, who did the music for Mushrooms album and is a beautiful artist and, and pretty well versed and, and a medicine man in his own right, said that's different for everyone. Some people's neurochemistry, a half a gram might be a heroic dose. I literally hold chocolates that have little bits of mushroom in and I'm journeying, like just holding it in my hand. So I'm like, I'm fascinated. Well, and that's where, you know, that's uh, Dr. Will Tegel's the same way. He works with a lot of plant medicines. He doesn't even ingest them. He meditates near next to them and receives full-blown visions. So I think that's kind of the Yoda, you know, where I might be aspiring to get to, but Kalindi gives permission and he does the same thing as Terrence and that it's supposed to be done alone. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do this alone. And I had my wife checking on me periodically. She just come and listen to make sure I was okay. I put on the music from Mushrooms album from East Forest. I had fasted the entire day. I did the juve light, did the cold bath. I did everything to ground myself and get me into my body, but I opened it completely with the fast. Were you going in with a certain intention? Yeah, you know, Kalindi had basically said, there's a couple things that were really drawing to me. One of the things he mentions that I'm sure, you know, the listeners are wondering is there's got to be a ceiling, right? Like they're sure after five, what is it like? I mean, it, 10 can't be that much different from 15 and 15 can't be that much different than 20. Wrong. There is no ceiling when it comes to psilocybin. psilocybin and that's why it's his favorite medicine tool of all the tools. Because if you, you can have enough ayahuasca that you're hospitalized and your brain or your ego might not fully come back on board. Or, you know, iboga, you could literally puke and shit yourself to death or have a fever where you, your heart ceases. Like there's a number of things where you there is an overdose limit. And for whatever reason, that doesn't seem to be the case with psilocybin. It doesn't mean you can't be fucked up mentally, emotionally from having too much. That's easily the case and all I'll unpack some of that in a second. But, you know, the 30 grams is significantly different than any other experience I've ever had. 15, 10, like it was just orders of magnitude different. It was basically like 5-MeO DMT for four hours. Like it was out of body 
after 20 minutes, I was out of my body the entire rest of the night. I ingested at 8.30. They were ground up and put in a sugar cup with water. Normally, I do like some type of citrus to activate it. But because I was fasted, I, I got a clear no on citrus. And what was great is it was actually filling. That's a lot of mushrooms. I didn't want to chew them up. So I ground them in a coffee grinder and then I, I ingested it that way. And, and I felt full and relaxed. And I had many things on the plate. You know, number one, connecting to the soul of our unborn daughter huge. I had had started getting a communication from her in ayahuasca and as far back as 2016 and she just wasn't around. And then now, you know, Tosh was, was, uh, we're really trying, you know, really trying to get pregnant. And so just a lot there, a lot around my son and a lot around really wanting to explore depths that I haven't been to before. And that's what Kalindi was offering was that with a tool like that, a lot of people were wondering like Rick Strassman who did DMT, the spirit molecule, he wanted to study, like, how do we get a sustained drip so you're in DMT land far enough, long enough, that you can actually start to have communication with different entities and things like that. A true, like, uh, interdimensional portal where you can actually see, you know, the rest of the cosmos, the rest of God, and actually start to know it and, and come back with some gems. And so that was fascinating to me. It was like, there, here's the bonus material, and I'm totally open for it. And yeah, I can get weird for sure <laughs> talking about, like, the, the trip report, but I saw beings at my feet. With my eyes open, I had never had any interaction with ETs or beings or, you know, spirits are formless to me or they look like light. You know, this, these were actual beings. And I mean, I remember rubbing my eyes and opening them like, holy shit, uh, y'all are here. And I didn't know, like... Were they different types or all like one type? Two. They kind of looked like a large insectoid. And they spoke in like a clicking tongue that I had no idea. It was like... I had no idea what the hell they were saying. And I just remember asking them because I just, a fantastic book is the DMT Dialogues. And it has Strassman, McKenna, Rupert Sheldrake, Graham Hancock, the best of the best in that space speak. And one of the reoccurring themes in that is if you come across something that's dark or scary and you say no and you're pulled out of the DMT space, most of those veterans will say, damn it, I wish I would have said yes. So do not be afraid and recognize that all forms of spirit are there for a reason and that you can learn from all those things if you have... Uh, a willingness to and that you can surrender to the appearance or, or the fear that might be surrounding them and yourself. And so that's really a book that I'd finished like days beforehand. And so I had that yes, say yes, you know, in me. But I remember these beings that, you know, wondering like, are they there for me? Are they there not for me? Because you can come across anything, you know, when you're deep enough and being solo, you know, it's not like I had someone blowing smoke over me or singing Icaros, like it's a different experience. And I just thought that, are you guys here for me? And they just reached out and every time they touched my body, I'd feel this ball of love move through right through the area they touched. And that just allowed me to relax deeper and recognize that I was being guided and that I was safe. And, you know, in the first portion of that, I have no way of telling time, but 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour max. Like I had ironed out every in intention I had in being there, I had learned everything I needed to learn, had witnessed my son's soul as this thing so beyond my imagination that, you know, truly he was the medicine man and the teacher. And that my job was to honor him as that teacher and get the fuck out of his way. You know, like I key, the wisdom of his soul was so powerful that it was just my job as a caretaker of him to get him to a place where he'll re remember that for himself and recollect that. And so just beautiful things, you know, and then this, uh, I have a mandala on the wall and, he, and Kalindi also talks about mandalas being uh, 2D representations of things that exist in 3D reality. And so he's actually done computer programs to show like they actually erect like Buddhist temples and different things like that or the Taj Mahal and these sacred structures. And so I'm looking at this at the wall and this little wormhole opens up 
And mind you, I mean, I've never had any five grams, no, no heroic dose in my life has ever been this deep, like this visual, this anything where it was just like, holy shit, this is happening now. Like stuff I had read about or, you know, and it sounds pretty out there, but this wormhole opened up and it crawled slowly up my body and I was asking it to come in like, it's okay, little buddy, come on in. You know, and it stops on my chest and there's a little ring around it separating it from the rest of the room. I can see the beings out behind it. And as I look in, it's completely black on the inside. And I was like, what the fuck is this thing? And I recognized it as the darkness, you know? And I just asked one time, can I go there? And the answer was yes, unequivocally. The book I just finished reminded me of that. And you had set that intention. Yep. And for the next, you know, however long, I spent eternity in hell. And it went from, the best way to put that, because I understand that it's a very vague statement, the most conscious fears that I had were of my wife miscarrying again. We had miscarried once since Bear's birth and my, you know, started conversations with my daughter. And, you know, there was plenty of reasons behind that that aren't pertinent for the show, but I really did have a conscious fear of that. And so the first level of this was me drinking mushrooms and then I could talk to all the people in health and wellness that I'd learned from, from Paul Check to Rob Wolf, anybody. You know, I could just telecommunicate with them and say, yeah, everything's going great. And then I'd get this signal from her belly like, "Uh uh-oh, there's a problem. And then red lights would start flashing and I'd I'd sprint over to her and she would just explode. And it was fucking graphic, like just gnarly. And that kept happening. It would start back from me drinking mushrooms. And finally, after a while, I'm like, holy shit, it's a loop. And then I'd catch myself in the loop. And only with full surrender, and I mean really fully surrendering, where I'm like, yeah, yeah, and then she explodes, and then the earth dies, and it's all my fault. Like I had to come to a place where it was just like, who the fuck cares? And this was an indeterminable amount of time on repeat over and over and over again. It could have all happened in one second, right? But that's how it works in the quantum. Like, I mean, I spent eternity there. And, and then the next level would start. And I'd be like, oh, thank God, something new. And I wouldn't recognize it was another worst experience of all time. Another loop. <laughs> another loop. Until midway through that, I'm like, fuck, this is on repeat now, you know? And then I would have to come to a place of like fully surrendering. And then, okay, I get it. Okay, okay, I get it. Okay, all right, fuck it. All right, this is going to happen. All right, so what? Who cares? And literally not, like truly not give a shit. And then it would move on. And I went through five layers of that. The first two were conscious. The last few were pretty unconscious. You know, like stuff that I don't think about every day, but clearly was a fear. You know, the one of them was uh, that super intelligent AI has already had already transpired, and they, like humans, were trying to figure out how they were created the same way humans try to figure out their own creation. And oh, so now, okay. super intelligent AI is running the simulation to figure out who birthed them and why. And I'm living in that, but I am not God. I am super intelligent AI. And I was just like, no. <laughs> Talk about mindfulness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So and that's not a conscious fear. That was just something that I lived, and I was like, oh, that's certainly in there. And, you know, the why behind that, you know, it's funny is if you know, like people might be thinking like, why the fuck would you ever do that again? Or why, what was the point in that? And truly the point in that for me, it ended abruptly at midnight and I'll, I'll talk about the ending, but I mean, like that was the greatest report card of me. Let me look at the shadow. Like what's operating me behind the scenes is fear. And whether I recognize that or not, that's a part of the OS. And if I can look at that and let go of it, truly let go of the conscious stuff and the unconscious stuff that's buried really deep, then I can come back to a place of equanimity and not live with fear. Yes, yes. Not having, not being driven and not having your operating system be of that. Got it. Okay. So the hardest report card of my life by far, I mean, just by far, it ended right at midnight. I thought I was dead for another 30 minutes. 
I mean, I remember taking a shower and cold shower, did nothing. I was just like, oh, interesting. I can't picture myself without a body yet. You know, I mean, I was out of my body for eternity. So returning to one was just like, hmm, that's funny, you know? Wow, I couldn't really feel myself yet either, rubbing my skin or in the cold. And I remember looking at a photo of Bear and then there was just something that clicked where I was like, oh, oh. And I remember the whole first half or first quarter, whatever that was, you know, and all that beauty. And then I recognized, ah, the journey is ending and I'm still teetering but the journey's ending and I am alive. Mm. And then from there, like, what do I want to do now? You know, it's like a Christmas carol when he comes back from the ghost of Christmas future. He's like, I'm alive, I'm alive. Had to have been the most profound relief <laughs> imaginable. <laughs> yeah. That is big stuff. And when did you start to talk to Tosh or who was the first person you tried to have a conversation with? Uh, I waited, you know, it's I couldn't, I was definitely done. There was no closed eyes visuals or anything like that for the remainder of the night but I couldn't sleep it was just too powerful and I really had to process that night I did from midnight until 6 a.m you know and and it was such a there was just so much to really get through and I took notes around 4 a.m and started actually journaling and and getting it out you know like I think of Dumbledore when he when he takes the his wand to his head and pulls a memory out and puts it in the cauldron that's journaling. Like you, let me grab this thing that that is just ruminating in my mind and set it aside for a second, so I can come back to it when I feel like it. But I give my system permission to not ruminate and, and just linger around over this. And so as I started really writing things down, then it became clearer and easier, and and I my brain tried to hold on to less of it. You know. Yeah, we talked about stuff the next day. We went out to a waterfall and got in the ice cold water and it was winter time and it was just perfect medicine. You know, the water grounding me, the cold grounding me and, and being around family and really getting to love on them and, and say, fuck yeah, I'm alive. Let's go, you know? And nothing nothing on this plane is was worse than what I experienced. So Yeah, let's know? go. <laughs> it's easy, easy peasy here. Uh, and so I'd love to close with, you know, the weeks, months, or maybe even to this day, you know, is that particular ceremony still informing you or what was the more long-term integration process like for you? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I said, that's good for now. I think if I do that again, I would want the guidance of a black belt. You know, like I would definitely want some, not an iPad playing or my Spotify, but like somebody there who can feel into where I'm at, connect with me and guide me through the journey and let me know like, hey dude, you're going through it, but you're not dead. Those kind of things. And because that, that is an experience where... If I didn't surrender and I started flailing and, and trying to avoid that experience, that's where somebody runs down the street naked and gets hit by a car or somebody jumps out of a window like that. That's how that experience unfolds without the preparation and the countless journeys that I had in coaching and really curated experience with Wheatsy and, and things And like also that, it know. sounds, I mean, you, you had a real genuine call, like there, there was the resonance in the call to lean into that teacher's work. And then as you were answering that call, the full body resonance and call to work with the medicine at that capacity. I mean, you were, this this was not just like moment decision. Like this was a whole calling process. Yeah. And so I, I haven't had that. I haven't gone that deep with psilocybin since then, you know, a year ago. And I talk about this on my podcast. I had a, a dark night of the soul where it was a, an initiation with 5-MeO-DMT. And that brought me right back to one of the layers of hell. It was like an infinite purge. And I recognized like, holy shit, I'm here again. And that level of fear manifested. And then I, I you know, 5-MeO is the unique ability to cause reactivations where if you're going to go to sleep or meditate that that can hit you just as hard as when you just took the medicine and so for 17 nights I went through this where it was I either didn't sleep or I would go to sleep and I'd enter hell for three or four hours 
which is eternity, and then I'd wake up at 1 a.m., 3 a.m., and I wouldn't go back to sleep. And with the lack of sleep, that started to blur into the waking dream, you know, my everyday state of consciousness and how I was around my family and how I saw the normal actions of a five-year-old or, or, you know, those kind of things. And it was just like, oh, man, this, I need, I need help, you know, and Tosh. For those listening, my jaw is on the floor, just FYI. <laughs> Tosh had me reach out to Paul Check, of course, and, you know, he really bridged the gap with a closing ceremony mm-hmm. and the, a humbling prayer to spirit to bridge the gap to the high self and the soul to bridge the gap to the low self so that Kyle Kingsbury would understand it without fear in my dreams so that I could remain asleep and restore my body to restore the work that I was to do here. And that turned it off. I mean, it was like that. That was Christmas Eve 2020. So that was the greatest present of all time, of all time by far. And, you know, this year I took eight months off from anything and you know, I was able to do that first journey was all about healing my relationship with the medicine Mm -hmm. and coming to a place of understanding God as the divine mirror who always says yes, you know, and if I believe this world we're in to be the devil's world or, you know, controlled by the archons or whatever the Gnostics call them, you know, that will get reverberated to me, you know, so really there is a choose your own adventure portion of consciousness that we all interact with on a daily basis and having that understanding from my own personal experiences and, you know, different teachers, you know, wise teachers and elders like Paul Check that I've worked with and worked under for many years, like that, those things all kind of came to one beautiful head point that allowed me to see things differently. And it really gave me my navigational compass back, not only in the medicine journey, but in life as well. And so it's been, you know, from that December 2019, 30 gram journey to the December 2020, 5-MEO journey up until right now, we're in November of 2021, two-year initiation process that I'm finally coming back into harmony with. And that's been my intention all year. You know, I am in harmony with myself, harmony with my family and harmony with God. That's been my intention all year long. And I finally feel that and recognize that strongly. If I had my rattle, be rattling, celebrating. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. Because obviously, there's such potent medicine and storytelling. And I gained a lot from everything you've been sharing. And I'm sure the listeners have too. Before we close with the little brief ritual practice method, whatever you feel called to share, I think the last thing I'd be curious about, and it doesn't have to be long because I have no idea how long we've been going, but um, I'm just curious with like divine masculine and divine feminine, you know, through all of your working, you know, coming from being a football player and fighter and martial artist and then like expanding your consciousness and facing all these things about yourself. I I don't know, like where are you at? Like, do you feel like you've really learned how to embrace your divine? feminine and how has your viewpoint of like what it means to be a man changed like a little bit about that yeah that's great and this is something that we're really was our course curriculum for the year in fit for service so I always laugh at like the mirror <laughs> when great. somebody asks you this question it's just like God serving up a softball we started this year with the sacred feminine trimester one trimester two sacred masculine and then divine union sacred union in our final trimester and we're just closing out the year with that and, you know, that's, of course, Aubrey Marcus's mastermind. I'm one of the lead coaches with Eric Godsey and Caitlin Howe and bring in amazing people, you know, at our events. We had Kaya Ra come and speak from the Sophia Code. Tias Stefano from Initiation on Gaia came out. Paul Selig has come and channeled for us. Love Paul. He's Forest has played He contributed for to the book. Yeah, they're just incredible, incredible people, you know. And for me, it's, it's breaking down the idea of... You know, whatever notions I have of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. And really, when you break down what uh, the thrice great Hermes was proposing was that we all have masculine and feminine within all of us. Everything has that within themselves. And what does that mean to access those things? You know, so if I think of being 
feminine doing masculine. There's there's ways that we can kind of polarize those aspects and make it a little bit clearer. But the masculine part of me is is right action, right thought, right speech, right action. You know, as they say in yoga, right thought, right speech, right action. And the muse for that is coming from the cosmic egg. That's the feminine. So how do I access that? That's the listening portion. Am I receptive to what's coming through? Can I soften myself to receive what wants to be birthed through me? And then act on that with the masculine. And really, you know, in a, in a practical way, it's a, for me about creating space for those things to come through. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a plant medicine journey or anything like that. It's what is a daily practice. I learned one of the guys I had on my podcast, Greg Schmaus, who's a high-level Czech professional and an awesome, awesome person. He talked about the 24-hour yearly cycle. You know, you have this annual cycle that the earth has of the four seasons and applying the four seasons to our daily practice. So if winter is sleep and summer is work, most people go from winter to summer, summer to winter, or they have a tiny ass fall where they have a drink or a smoke and they watch some shitty TV. Turn a fire on once. But we miss spring and we miss fall. And the more I've invested into the spring and the fall, the more I've given myself space to enhance my winter sleep and enhance my work summer. So the springtime for me has become meditation. And I worked with you know Emily Fletcher. I talked last time with Luke. Ziva meditation has been one of the most powerful and impactful. I put that as important and as powerful as ayahuasca for me. Oh, that's great. So twice a day with uh, that meditation style, one of the Vedic meditations, really just a practice of stillness, a practice of listening, a practice of being and receiving. And sauna, ice bath, usually go in that first hour, stretching, opening up my body, all before the kids get up. You know, there's a lot of people, as she calls them householders, there's a lot of householders out there that have got all the excuses in the world on, you know, what your daily responsibilities are and all that shit. But if you just get up earlier, you can at least have spring, right? We all have a fall. It's, it's the time you get home from work before you go to bed. But can you actually create a springtime? And in doing that, that not only does that make my day easier and better, I mean, it doesn't matter how many emails I have. It doesn't matter who's upset in the house or, or how much shit needs to get done. I filled my cup first. And I've created space in my own life that allows me to show up better as a father, better as a husband, better as a worker. And, you know, coming home, play, getting off my phone, getting out of work and really being present with my kids and then having a wind down routine for them where we take a nice hot bath every single night. Then we're on uh, the biomat or the higher dose and we're reading books together, like snuggled up on this, you know, uh, beautiful pulse electromagnetic frequency, getting the red light and making an effort to establish a routine that systematically brings us back into resonance and calms our bodies and our minds. And doing that, you know, every single day, really focusing on spring and fall has made everything else better. Wow. I mean, that could almost fit as your closing ceremony circle, you know, methodology that you share, I'll let you be the de final determinant of that, but speaks to me so deeply. And I will just uh, tiny little note that, yeah, I'm in this time where I am really consciously taking a lot of space and a lot of breath. I am taking November and December off of social media. I am not putting any new ceremony circle episodes out in those months. I'll just be coming back probably like the Thursday before turns 2022 to like just open the gateway into a new year but I was really guided and called into this space and it's been really powerful there's so much to it which I could actually do a whole solo cast around but I'm yeah really present to what you just spoke to and really happy that I've answered the call to take that breath and space for myself as I've gone through so many initiations in the past month and a huge main archetype has disintegrated away with honor and because it's time and this whole new archetype needed space to come in that's a totally new and foreign one and so yeah I think that what you just shared will be really helpful for a lot of people 
Do you feel like that could suffice as your ceremony circle closing practice? Certainly. One, one thing that I'll add is, uh, you know, the meathead millionaire, Mark Bell, who's a power lifter that maybe your listeners probably aren't familiar with. I love that guy because he, you know, people look at me and they're like, I mean, I remember <laughs> being in ayahuasca during a day ceremony and somebody looked at me on the medicine. They're like, she didn't speak a word of English, only Spanish. And she goes, the Hulk, el Hulko, the Hulk. And I was like, whoa. And I just started laughing. She just was pointing wide-eyed like she was looking at, like she fucking saw the In Hulk. the medicine? Yeah. On the medicine, she looked at me with my shirt off and she's like, that's a fucking Hulk. Yeah. Right? And so like, I don't, I know I'm bigger than most people, but I don't think of myself as that. And it's, it always cracks me up when someone has an idea of what, you know, the avatar that I have is like on the inside, you know? And, and so I always joke about that with Mark because Mark is much bigger than I am. He's competed in bodybuilding and, and a powerlifting champion, and he's a brilliant dude, but he's also a big fucking teddy bear. And uh, one of the things that he started doing was like a 10-minute podcast where he'd walk twice a day for 10 minutes, 10-minute walks, and he'd just talk into a microphone for 10 minutes, and he'd get people to go on these walks and listen to his 10-minute podcast. And as I've applied that to my spring and my fall, you know, I'm doing sometimes two mile walks with the kids where we'll field walk as far as she can. Then she'll get in the stroller bears on his bike. So he doesn't have to go, you know, two full miles by foot, but we'll go out for 30 minutes sometimes on the shorter end, sometimes for an hour and a half on the longer end at sunup and sundown. And those pieces, you know, especially with how often we're indoors. And I know you guys are well aware of light and screens and all that stuff, but antidote to that isn't just, you know, blue blockers and you know amber bulbs the, the antidote to that is getting outside as these date these critical points in the day change there's a reason we do ceremony on solstices and equinox right these are critical points in the in the, the annual calendar of the earth and if we tune into that they're special the full moon is special the new moon is special sun up and sundown is special and if we're outdoors for that even if it's in a city like we live in a suburb i'm not walking through some sacred forest but I still get to see the Cooper's hawk. Mm -hmm. I still get to see the bees and the hummingbirds. I still get to see the dragonflies. And I don't get that inside. So getting outside for that twice a day, you know, in my spring and fall really has been one of the most potent felt experiences I've ever had. And I think one last way to tie that in is we can focus on the black and white. You know, Paul Levy wrote the book, Quantum Revelation, and also wrote Dispelling with Tico. And he said in Quantum Revelations, we are really forced through society to look at things as black and white, but there's so much gray area. And what quantum physics proposes is that it's not either or, it's both and. And really, when I think of that connecting outdoors to the daily, anyways, being in nature, no matter where it is, even if it's in New York City, yeah. you know, like if you get outside and, and you're smelling car exhaust and trash, you're still outside. Right. And it's still super important to be outside. I second that. I had my awakening in Brooklyn and my saving grace after that time was taking walks, literally just freaking walking down. I forget the name of the busy street in the middle of Brooklyn. Think the Lord Prospect Park wasn't all that far, but it was probably like a 10, 15 minute walk, probably 15 minutes. I would walk down this busy road to Prospect Park. I would walk around that and walk back to my brownstone in the middle of Brooklyn. But like that literally was what was saving my life at the time was walking around the streets of Brooklyn. So I believe in it. And uh, my God, I didn't get to like, you know, three quarters of the questions on my pieces of paper. So I can tell you're a guest. I'm just going to have to come back, especially because you have all these new projects that are percolating and birthing that I'm so into. So thank you for all your time, wisdom, energy, your commitment to learning yourself, facing yourself, the evolutionary path, learning and honoring the divine and just 
all that has come from doing that that you can share with us. Um, we receive it all with great respect and honor. And um, how can people find you and connect with you more? Yeah, we're at Living with the Kingsburys on Instagram. You can hit me up in the DMs there. That's a joint account with my wife and I, Natasha. Yeah, I love how you just popped off social media. You're like, I'm out of here. But you have the family account. <laughs> yeah, I realize it's a fairly fast and effective way to communicate with people after I popped off. But it's cool. You know, I had many more followers than I do now. And I realized like they weren't really followers if they didn't go try to find me elsewhere, you know. So it feels like a much better, highly curated group that's with us now. And of course, my podcast, the Cal Kingsbury podcast, fitforservice.com is uh, our new website that you know basically if you're interested in, in joining us and learning from us and going through you know really what it means to go through transformative experiences in a, in a larger community you know of 200 300 people we've seen some really cool things happen there you know i'm sure having brothers and sisters in arms in that way and yeah we're, we're in our third year we're heading into year four and it's, it's just continued to grow greater than anything we could have ever imagined and that's really where a lot of my heart and soul goes into i'm super excited to be a part of that ah uh, thank you so much kyle absolutely all right guys we'll see you next time Woo! What a powerful voyage that was. It is just my greatest honor. It brings me so much joy and activates and lights up my soul to be able to sit with these incredible embodied, true spiritual masters and leaders from all over the world. I ask that you please, if you feel called, continue to support them and their work in whatever way that feels aligned for you. Please go to my website where all the show notes are listed, www.alisoncharles.com. That's www.alisoncharles.com so that you can access their direct links to their website and social media platforms and additional information about them. And remember, what makes Ceremony Circle so unique is that at the end of every single episode, as you just experienced, we immerse in a powerful ceremony, ritual, invocation, prayer, spiritual song, some sort of activation that the guest feels called to offer on that day. So listen to your intuition. If at any point, Moving forward, you feel called to come back and re-immerse in this guided ceremonial experience, do so. Because I guarantee every single time you experience it, you will receive a new medicine transmission, a new awareness, a new awakening aspect within your soul. It has been an honor voyaging with you. Please keep the Ceremony Circle community vibes growing and activating. Find me on Instagram at I am Allison Charles. And let me know how you enjoyed this episode. Let me know how you are creating your own sacred Ceremony Circle space. Tag those in your soul fam who are immersing in the Ceremony Circle episodes and experiences with you. And let's unite in the next episode coming out next week so we can continue to activate the consciousness energies of planet Earth and the universes. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and my intention is not to provide medical advice or diagnosis. You should always consult a health professional before making drastic changes to your diet or lifestyle.